Today, as was early mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday, and, uh, and we're in this series, so it fits really well. I'm going to be in 1 Kings 18, if you want to turn there. It's part two of prerequisites, prerequisites for fire in our lives. And when I say fire, there's a lot of, a lot of ways, and I, I, if, you haven't, if you haven't been here, you can go back and listen to or, or view some of the other messages that have been preached in this series. But, but fire, uh, certainly judgment, we see that in Scripture, but also we see God, who is an all-consuming fire. We, we see him answering with fire. And here in this text, we see this. And we see the, the picture of the Holy Spirit given to us out of Scripture is fire. So 1 Kings 18, uh, verse 38 and 39 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked it up, it licked up the water that was in the trench. And then, it says this, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And just in great emphasis, they said this. Now, um, earlier, before this event happens, because this is God, can you imagine you're there, and, and the sacrifice is there, and all of a sudden, out of heaven comes fire, and consumes not only the sacrifice, but it says this, the wood and the stones and the, the water that was filled in the trenches, we'll talk about that in a moment, and the dust just consumes it all. And if you're standing there, you're like those people, you're like, the Lord, he is God. <laughs> right? This is so, in such a dramatic fashion, there's no way you're walking away from that saying, well, I'm still kind of on the fence about God, Jesus, and I don't know, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come to church a few more weeks and see what it's like. Or, no, you've made your mind up at that point because it's just so incredibly um, visible to see. And last weekend, uh, as I started part, in part one of this, and you can go Elevation Podcast Network, you can go to YouTube, to Elevation Church, Elevation Indy, and you'll find us. You can go back and look at this. But, but I just talked about the idea because people were silent. When, when Elijah issues the first charge, well, nobody's saying anything. They're, they're maybe intimidated. Maybe they're on the fence. Maybe they bought into what they think is truth but is false so much that now they can't even come back to truth. Whatever's going on, they're just silent. Nobody is like, Elijah, hey, we're with you, man. Let's do it. Everybody's in fear. Anybody ever been out on your own on something before? Like you step out and like, like nobody else stepped with you and now you're out here? And then that's, that's the way Elijah's there. He's got all the people, the 450 prophets of Baal. He's got uh, King Ahab. He's got all the people that, that are worshiping Baal. And then he's got the chosen people of God who just aren't saying anything. They're just silent. And they're, they're not uttering a word. They're just kind of either intimidated or they just have been lost in this, um, this worship of a false god. And, and, and so I just asked these three questions. Again, you can go see it. I just want to give us these. So what happened? Three questions last Sunday. If you weren't here, if you were, you probably already got them. How long will you stay in an inactive decision for Christ? How long are you going to be stuck and stay where you're at Without, without moving forward in your relationship with Jesus. Second question is, what sacrifice are you preparing? Now, I'm just going to tell you, and we're going to dig into this a little bit today, that when it comes to sacrifice, that, that sacrifice that's, that's genuine and, and real is always intentional. You say, yeah, I made that decision, man. I sacrificed a bunch. Yeah, but that's not genuine sacrifice. Genuine sacrifice means I make up my mind and I... I purposefully give whatever it is, right? 
And third question was, was this, what kind of fire is in your life? Because we can get fired up about a whole lot of things. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You can get a lot of passion for a lot of stuff. Stuff that in eternity, there's no time in eternity, so it's difficult for me to, it would be difficult to measure this, but a million years into eternity, you won't care about that thing that you thought you cared about here on earth. Are you with me? He will be everything. And that's why he needs to be everything now. And so, so I shared a, a, a number on first Wednesday, and I'll, I'm going to share some other ones t- today real quickly because I think we have to look at where are we at as a culture, as a people. We, where, where are we living at? What, what is the state of the church as, as believers in America? Well, what's going on? And, and I, I'll give you some numbers because I think they, are, they help us see. I don't, if you're here for the first time, I don't always share bunch of numbers, but today I'll share a few. So 63% of Americans identify as Christian. And that kind of sounds, well, that sounds a little better than we might think, or maybe you think it sounds worse. 63% identify. Now that means this, if somebody says to you, are you Hindu? Are you, are you uh, Muslim? Are you uh, Jewish? Are you um, whatever else? I'm trying to get the other one, Buddhist, whatever it is, uh, whatever, the, whatever the, the gamut may be, or are you Christian, the people would say Christian. Not that they're actively pursuing God, but if they're asked in a survey, like, which, which would you be? Well, Christian. Now, here's why 63%, right, that could be a little inflated because anybody could say that if they've been in America just about. But here's, what, here's the negative side of this is in the last 14 years, that has dropped from 78% of Americans to 63%. Are you with me? Yeah, so that's, that's, not, a good, that's not a good number. 47% of Americans are members of a house of worship. And when I read that until I dug deep, I thought, well, that sounds better than I thought it would sound. Now, members doesn't mean that they attend. Because, you know, if you ask, if you, I, I used to do this back in a day when you could do it. When I was very young, we'd go knock on doors and just share share Jesus with people. I was kind of a little bit of a radical. I'd go do it today if somebody wants to do it, but people think you're there to kill them, you know. They got cameras. They know who you are before you come in. But, um, but I, what I was going to say is that, that it's, it's not so much. It's, it's, if you knock on the door and you say, hey, are you a member? Well, yeah, is, is what you get. Hey, I wanted to talk to you about Jesus or something. I don't know how we'd address it back then, but somebody would say, well, I'm Baptist. Like, well, that's good. Here's what, I, here's what I learned. I would ask this. I said, which, which one do you go? Well, we go First Baptist. I said, oh, yeah. What's the pastor's name up there? It's always funny to watch people just try to stumble and figure that out. Hey, if somebody comes to your door and you come to church here, Tony Smith, it's real simple. It's just so simple. Um, but but you know, I'm just I'm just saying that Baptists or Catholic, well, Grandma, you know, we go to Mass at Christmas, whatever. I'm just saying that that people, when you ask them that question, are you a member of a house of worship? Well, yeah, I'm this. Now that also includes people that are members not only of a church but of a synagogue, of a mosque, of a temple. Forty-seven percent. Well, I'm just going to be honest with you, that's not that great because in 2000, the year 2000, it was 70 percent of Americans would say they're a member of a house of worship. 37% of Americans have confidence in the church. In the church. Well, that's sad. 
And I'll be honest with you, we caused some of that ourselves. We need to own up to that, right? There's some stuff that's happened in the church that's not been healthy, not been good. And, but but it's, it's sad that in a, in a nation like ours that we're in that place where the confidence level in the church, 37, in fact, that's, it's, it's at a really low place right now. Median number of a church out of 343,000 houses, Christian churches in America, the, the median, the middle, 65 people. That's dropped quite significantly from just a few years ago. The majority of, and I'm, let me tell you something, small is not bad, but it's an indicator. It's an indicator. When, when that was 85 not too many years ago and 100, again, not, not too long ago. Um, now, here's the one that bothered me, and I shared it on the first Wednesday. It's the only one I shared first Wednesday. You can go find this online. Uh, Arizona University did a, uh, a, a survey, a study, and uh, on, on the biblical worldview of pastors. So in America, Christian church pastors, only 37% of them have a biblical worldview. That's alarming. That's alarming. And by a biblical worldview, you can, again, you can go look at the study. It's, it's, it's things that everyone in here would probably get to a place of understanding, like, do I believe, do I believe in God's word? Do I believe God has a, a, a purpose for my life? Do I believe that I can have a relationship with God? I mean, it's not hard stuff. It's not like, do you believe in, you know, this, this doctrine or this theology that's espoused by one group of churches? No, it's very, very broad in its approach, only 37%. Now, that bothered me because, you know, people come into church, they survey people or people that say they go to church or people that think they're a part of a church. Well, I get where uh, that could be some low numbers and stuff could happen. But when I think about guys that are standing in front of people, men and women that are standing in front of people, leading people, and they really don't believe what God's Word says, and they don't have a biblical worldview, well, that's frightening. I think they ought to have to put it on the sign out in front. Hey, come to our church. By the way, the leader doesn't have a biblical worldview. He's got some other kind of philosophy about how the world works. If I was a leader in a domination, it would be bad because I'd just be firing guys like, okay, you don't need to be in front of anybody trying to lead them if you don't have a biblical worldview. It bothers me that there are people, and I heard one guy say, well, I went to a church. He said the pastor was, was visiting, the pastor was speaking, and he said, now, you all know I don't believe in God. But if you believe in God, you probably ought to serve him. I'm like, get that guy off of the stage. He doesn't need to be up there. Anybody with me? I know you're with me. And that bothers me. And, and I, said that to, I said that to say this. There's a reason why that we're in 50 days of fire and that I'm saying that you need to passionately pursue God. You need God to come into your life with the Holy Spirit and with fire that causes you to have a hunger and desire for Him. And sometimes surrendering my own agenda or my belief or my, my thoughts about something and saying, God, I'm just all in. You know, one of them was about creation. You know, you, like, I believe in creation. And I got a pretty good, I, I feel like I got a fairly good stance. And if we ever sit down, we were just talking one-on-one, -on -one, I could just like, give you some stuff that I think, I think you think, well, that sounds good too. I think. You may say, no, I like it this other way. I'm talking about creation. We could disagree on how we think creation all came about. Really could. If we believe he created it. 
and I'll be honest with you, I don't understand all about creation. I wasn't there when he did it. It's a question he told Job, question he posed to Job. I wasn't there. I don't understand how it all works. I don't know how the world is spinning. And, and yes, I, I spent time in, in physics and, and chemistry and biology and all those, and, and, and I got an understanding, but I'm still telling you it's bigger than me, understanding it. Now, now I'll, I'll say this. I got an iPad up here, and I don't understand how it works. I'm going to be honest with you. I mess up sometimes, and, but I don't even understand how the, the technology in there does what it does. Sometimes I can put something on my phone, and I just, like, copy it, and it'll paste on my iPad. I mean, it blows my mind. I don't know how that does. Through the air somehow. I don't know how it works. But I believe in Steve Jobs. Are you with me? Like, like I'm saying, I don't understand how all about creation, and I've been to the Creation Museum, and I've read books, and, and i got some great ideas, but at the end of the day, I don't understand it all, but I believe in God. Are you with me? I don't have to, I don't have, to have somebody give me all the facts about this is how it works. I'm just, yes, my faith is in him. 1 Kings 18, verse 24, then you call Here's what Elijah says. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it's well spoken. So he says this. There's going to be some calling on God going on. You might, this verse, you might just underline it or highlight it or mark it somehow, write it in your notes. Because he's challenging. We're going to call on God. Then we'll pick it up in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. A good place right there. Underline, highlight that. He repaired the altar that was broken down. And so Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the 12 stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four water pots, four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the, and it also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice, the offering of the Lord, that Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Israel. You may notice he says Israel instead of Jacob there. Might be a good place to go and read that later. That he, and he says this, that, that knowing this day that you are God in Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Now, that's revival right there. When our hearts are turned back to God, that's revival. And that's what this is about. We, we need life. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you're listening online, I'll just help you. If, you're just, if you just happen by our way, 
and you're stuck in some cold, dead, dry church, get out. If you're, if you, if you're sitting in a church where a pastor doesn't have a biblical worldview, get out. My online audience. To you this morning, we should never want to settle for that. Cold, dead, dry, like you walk in and there's nothing that you feel of presence of God. I pray, one of my regular prayers for us when I pray for the weekend is, God, saturate this place with your presence. I don't care if we get to sing the first song or if I get to preach or anything else happens, God. We want your presence. We want your presence. And when his presence comes, I, 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 I'll tell you this, that if you're watching a speaker or a, uh, if it's a comedian or an actor or a singer, well, they need to have a little bit of something about them. I've seen some early footage of the Beatles. When they step on stage, it was like there was electricity when they were singing. I'm not saying it's Holy Spirit at all. I'm just saying. And, and people are like, yeah. You know, she loves me, yeah, yeah. But they were singing it with some, there was something behind them, right? There was, there was some energy behind it, and that's attractive. And guess what? We're attracted to, to we don't, we really don't like, we don't like it when it's, if we're honest with ourselves, when it's just a half-hearted effort, when it's just complacency. And so first thing Elijah does is he calls on God. He calls on God. And that's, a, that's the first point this morning. Call on God. You see, it's very simple, Pastor. It is. I want us to get this, though, because it's something that, that we can either misunderstand or, or we can honestly not do. And you may be saying, well, what does it mean to call on God? Or how does, call on God work in my, how does calling on God work in my life? Well, I'm going to try to illustrate that best I can this morning. And, and I could spend a lot of time, but spend a few minutes on this, on the idea that anybody, you, you get a call on your phone, uh, we don't do it much anymore, but back when I was young, sometimes somebody call you and it'd be a stranger. You didn't recognize them. I, I remember when I, was, when I was in junior high, I missed like the first couple weeks of being there when they did all the orientation. And so I went from elementary and go to junior high. And so when I got there, uh, they gave me all the stuff and map of the place, told you there's D Hall and there's, a, you know, so you're trying to navigate your, it's bigger. There's a bunch of elementary schools are now at this junior high. So you're trying to acclimate it to, all the stuff going on, and we had lockers there, and we never had lockers in the school. And they just gave me the combination, said, -da -da, I don't know, they told me what to do. I don't know if I was listening. I got to my locker, and I spun that thing and tried to do what they said, and it never would open, never would open. And so what I would do is, I would just, for the first week, I think, I'd turn around, and there'd be some strange kid that I had no clue who he was, and I'd say, hey, can you open my locker? Here's my combination. They told me this, and you know I am, I am. I just like said, and so they'd open my locker, and I'd get there between the next class, and I'd try to do what that person showed me, and it still wouldn't open. And I'd find some person, and I'd say, hey, can you open my locker? I'm telling you, probably 45 people have my combination. <laughs> I just knew I had books in there, and if they took them, they took them. <laughs> I'm just saying. It was, and for a lot of people, a little awkward to approach a stranger to ask for something. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But sometimes when we, when, we, when we talk about calling on God, sometimes it's like, Maybe you're not made, had the relationship with him. It's like God's a stranger. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I've never, because we connect calling on God to prayer, which is a good connection, a good attachment. But maybe you say, well, it just seems difficult because I feel like he's way far away. I feel like I don't know him. I don't, I'm just, I'm just going to say this, that you've got to approach him. And, and maybe in your life, maybe somebody's misrepresented God to you. 
I think sometimes when you think about a father, you know, God's heavenly father, maybe you had a, because uh, this is where the enemy will try to bring a wounding into your life and distort the image of father in your life. So maybe your father did some things and you look back and you say, well, it's hard for me to approach God as father because this is my experience. And, and be honest with you, I get that, but just know this, that's, that's the enemy trying to keep you from approaching God. Because if he can distort the image of your, of your earthly father, it may be difficult for you to connect with him as an earthly father. And just know this, that God is not a stranger, and he's not a bad earthly father. He's a good heavenly father. And you can approach him. The second kind of way that call works sometimes, and, and, um, and, I, and I think in Scripture, you know, you, you, you see this. Um, you, see, you see men that, you know, Adam had this incredible relationship with God. They, they walked together, and then you get, you get all the way down to his grandson before men. It says this in Genesis uh, 4, verse 26. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Like there was a, a distance, and maybe you feel that. But then the second kind of call is, is this, not just a stranger call, but a summons kind of call. Where, where someone's almost just summoning God when they need him. Maybe no relationship. Maybe you do. But when crisis comes, all of a sudden you go into, you know, I, I got a problem right here, and God, you're there. And it's almost like, you know, when they, when, they, when, they, when they want you to be in court, they give you a summons. And what that means is you've got to appear in court right here where we're at, not stay where you're at, but come to where we're at. And so sometimes we, we treat God like that. Well, God, I got this problem, so I need you to come and fix the problem that, I, that I've created or that I have or that is one of my life. And it's this summons kind of thing like he's a genie in a bottle. Well, I'm just going to be honest with you. You don't have to call on God like that either. That, that somehow we're, we're summoning him to be where we're at. Because the third kind of call is a friend call. And I mentioned the phone thing. You know, the friend call is when you get a call. So back in a prior millennium, we didn't have phones we could carry around with us. So when the phone rang at your house... There was a line, landline. It was connected. You go to it, you pick it up, and there's no caller. I remember there's no caller ID. You know who's calling you now. You just pick it up. Hello. And then all of a sudden, they start speaking. Now, if it's somebody you know, if it's a friend, they don't have to say, hey, this is your friend, Tom. Now you know their voice. You didn't you could call your wife or your husband. Well, you just knew their voice because you were familiar with them. You had relationship with them. You had been with them. You're doing life with them. And the friend call is when I call on God because I know him. Jesus said this in, in John's gospel that my sheep, they hear my voice and they know my voice. Psalms 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Everybody say in truth. Sometimes you get, in life you'll get calls that aren't in truth. I, I get a, a text uh, it happens quite frequently. And I found out I can block the number, so that seems kind of unfriendly, but, but I may have to do this. I get text, and it's about a property. They, they, they say, we want to buy your house. They do it quite often. It's never a house I've ever lived at. It's, it's 3015 Bethel Avenue, wherever that's at. I thought about going there and telling people, hey, there's people who want to buy your house. They text me all the time. And I'm going to make a confession to you. It's not been too long ago. Too many months ago, I got one from the same exact number, and I get it from different numbers. So maybe I just need to block the number, and I'll, I'll get rid of this temptation. But, but they text me and they said, "We want to buy your house." 
And I recognize the number because the text, I hadn't erased them all. So there's a bunch of texts over like a five-year period that they wanted to buy my house that I don't have. I never lived in. And I just thought, it's crazy that a stranger somewhere texts me to want buy my, to buy a house. Pick up the phone and call. You know, this way, like, send me a letter. I don't know. I don't know you. And so one day I just, you know, feel, again, I shouldn't have done this probably, but I said, they text me and I said, can you do it with cash? <laughs> and they responded back immediately, yes. I said, okay. Meet me at the corner of West Washington, Belmont, behind Joe's pawn shop in the alley with cash. Don't call the police. <laughs> I let them know I was kidding. They quit, they quit texting me. <laughs> uh, because, let me tell you something, that's not a call that was in truth. Are you with me? On either side of that. And God says this, that you can approach him, you can come to him, you can call on him, and he'll be near you, he'll he'll hear you when you come to him in relationship. And the last one is this, is a call of desperation. And I believe, I mean, I believe that, that Elijah knows God, right, there's a relationship, but I also know this, that it's a desperate call. I mean, it's a messed up place. And it looks, it looks like he's the only one that's calling on God. It's not like the people of God are saying, we're going to call on God with you. Or the enemies, enemies of God have been convinced now, and they're going to call as well. No, it looks like Elijah's calling on God alone. Calling on God alone. And sometimes in your life, you're going you're to maybe feel that way. Maybe you're the only one. But it's a call of desperation. God, this situation is so bad. It's so wrong that we need you to move. Second Chronicles 7.14 said, If my people who call by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's when we realize the death. I gave you numbers earlier because we need to realize the desperate, desperate call that we need to make that we need to step into and say, God, I'm calling on you because of my lack and my inability and, and my own personal struggle, but God, I'm also calling on you for a region and a city and a nation. Alexander White said Ezra in the book of Ezra, Ezra confesses Jerusalem's sin with an agony such as if all that sin had been his own. Ezra's spirit and public prayer, his attitude, his utterances are enough to scandalize all hard and dry and meager-hearted men. I think that's what Elijah did on that day. He took on the burden of where they were at, and he began to call on God. And I'm saying this, that some of you need to be in a position where you're calling on God for your marriage, for your family, for your, for your community. For the church, the big C church in America that we are calling on and interceding for them. And call on God if nobody else is calling. You know, some of you may be in a place where it seems like your sphere of influence, nobody's praying, nobody's, nobody seems serious about. Maybe, maybe you've got families that, that don't know Jesus. And, and I'm just saying, stand alone if you have to. Be like Elijah and call on God for them. I heard the testimony here of, of Lindsay and her sister who came to Jesus. Yeah, I want to tell you, a whole lot of people went their first year of college like Elizabeth didn't give her life to Jesus, but, but Elizabeth did. 
I believe that's because Lindsay was calling on God for her sister. And sometimes you got to stand alone. Old preacher L.L. Collins wrote the song and said, I'm going to pray if I pray by myself. I'm going to stand. If I have to stand alone, it'll be worth it to make it to glory. If they don't go, I'm going anyways. And sometimes you got to call on God. If you feel like you're the only one that's calling, call on him. Because prayer, prayer is so powerful in the life of a believer. I spent some time on Wednesday night just talking about it. And, and maybe, maybe I talk about it too much. I don't think so. Because I think that we're in a time when the church is anemic. Big C church is anemic. That, that we're in a time when prayerlessness is the tone of the church world. Biblical illiteracy is, the, is, is common in the church world. I, I love what Leonard Ravenhill said about prayer. He said, prayer is the most unexplored area of the Christian life. Prayer is the most powerful weapon of the Christian life. Prayer is the most hell-feared battle of the Christian life. Prayer is the most uh, secret device in the uh, uh, Christian life. Prayer is uh, the most underestimated power of the Christian life. Prayer is the most untaught truth in the Christian life. Prayer is the most demanding exercise in the Christian life. Prayer is the most neglected responsibility in the Christian life. Prayer is the most conquering outreach in the, in the Christian life. Prayer is the most uh, opposed warfare in the Christian life. Prayer is the most far-reaching ministry in the Christian life. We need to be people of prayer who call on God who understand that, that yes, it's, it's a privilege. I'm going to tell you, sometimes when you go to God in prayer, it's exciting and it's a privilege. There's other times when it may be hard work and be heavy. I was with, I was with my granddaughters the other night, and, and uh, two of them, the two oldest, and they were going to ice cream. There's a place they can eat ice cream at, and we were going there. And, um, and I got a prayer request or something that I can't remember what it was. And I said, and I said hey, well, why don't you guys pray? And, and I can't remember what the, the situation even was now. And, uh, and they're usually pretty good about wanting to pray, but they were kind of quiet. And so they're back all buckled and strapped and bubble wrapped and helmeted in the back seats, you know. But, but I said, because Lucy, you know, she can pray like on a dime. And sometimes she just sings her prayers. It's just like a, a prophetic thing. She just sings the prayers when she, and, it's, and so I said, Lucy, I said, won't you pray? And she said, GT, I'm tired. And my wife, Kim, said, are you too tired to get ice cream? No, I'm not too tired to get ice cream. <laughs> and so I helped Lucy out a little bit. I said, Lucy, sometimes prayer is hard work. She said, yeah, it's not as hard work as getting ice cream. <laughs> and I thought about us. Because yeah. the ice cream metaphor sounds good. The pleasurable things in life. Because sometimes prayer is hard work, but we can't not do it. Just because it seems like it's going to be hard work. Are you with me? God's calling us to step into the gap and say, God, we're standing between you and the people and we're interceding and we want to see their hearts turn back to you. We want to see fire. We want to see revival in the church in America. Yeah, and I'll tell you this, that, that when you call on God, um, he, he's a God who responds with fire. And the test, the proof test is going to be fire. Right, when we're calling on him. I want to tell you, you may be discouraged. When you enter into a season of prayer, you can come out. And it may even be hard work. Encouraged. 
And, and sometimes you've got to ask yourself this question, and I'll just throw this out to you. Does the thing that you're giving your life to, the thing that you get fired up about, the thing that seems like it puts a smile on your face, does that produce fire? Fire that's, that's going to that's gonna move you toward God. Because I think sometimes, and this is a good season to do this in 50 Days of Fire, there may be some stuff that you need to move out and some stuff that you need to move in. It's summer. It's a season when everybody's kind of doing their thing, and, and I get that. I'm a fan of vacations. Go on vacation. Don't everybody go the same week, but just go on vacation. I'm cool with that. But, but I'm just telling you that, that enjoy summer, but I'm calling us during the summer to say, to do some evaluation and say, God, are there some things I need to get out and some things I need to get in because I want fire? Next thing that Elijah deals with is he starts repairing the broken altars. Well, that right there gives you a picture, doesn't it? Repairing the broken altars. Altars are throughout Scripture. Um, Abraham, he built altars. It seems like Noah in chapter 8 of the book of Genesis was the first one to build, at least recorded, that built an altar. Um, Isaac built an altar in Genesis 26, 25. In fact, Genesis 26, if you're doing homework this week, it's a good chapter to read. Isaac built an altar. Jacob, well, he built altars. Uh, Moses built an altar. Saul built an altar. These are the recorded. I'm sure uh, that those, I know those weren't the only ones. Many times altars were built because that's a place that, that they had a, it was a meeting place with God. Jacob said, I'm going to call this place Bethel, house of God, because God met with me here. Altars are a place of, of, of uh, connection with God. They're also a place of sacrifice. And I think that Isaac, well, he understood in Genesis uh, 22, Isaac understood about, about altars because was, that was a day that Ab Abraham grabbed his son and was going to sacrifice his son on the altar, and God stopped that from happening. And so all, Isaac knew what it meant when an altar was all about. Isaac being an uh, image, a, a, a uh, type of Jesus, uh, when we see Abraham giving his only son, it's a picture of what the father did to us in giving his only son. So, well, Isaac would have understood altars. And, and Elijah, well, he certainly understands altars, and he knows that, that this needs to be rebuilt, that I've got to get this together because there's a lack of commitment. And I'll give you a word you can write down, a lack of dedication. An altar is a place of dedication. It, it, it tells us and it shows God and those around us, well, this is what we're dedicated to. We're not dedicated to worshiping a false god. We're not dedicated to following some, some false um, image for life, but we're dedicated to God. And Paul implores us to place our, our life before God in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 in the Message Bible. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you take your everyday Ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become, ooh, just catch this right here. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention. On God, you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize that he, what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you 
down to the level of, of uh, immaturity, to its immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. It's giving you. I don't need to bring a bull. I don't need to bring a, 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 a lamb or a goat. I don't need to bring any of that to the altar. Jesus Christ was a lamb once and for all. And now what, what we do is the altar that we uh, make a sacrifice is ourselves. That we surrender, that we dedicate ourselves to him. And the question this morning is, where are you at with this? What about you? Have you built an altar? Have you offered yourself as a sacrifice to God? Have you said, God, I'm yours. We used to sing, a, sing an old song. I don't know if the words have come out right because I haven't sung it in a long time. But, but uh, if you can use anything, yeah, it won't. Anyways, that's okay. It's been a long time. <laughs> Jesus, use me. Please don't refuse me. She's, she's mouthing him to me, but I'm still not getting it. I got part of it. It's, it's, it's the idea that we just say, God, I'm yours. And by the way, I don't think that's an easy thing to say. It's easy for me to preach it. It's easy to say that. It's easy to voice words. The act of saying, God, I'm going to be yours. And, and things like this will happen. I was in a parking lot of a department store. Not, it's been a couple years ago. It happened, things like this happen to me often. But, but the Lord said, go back and, and talk to that guy there. Well, he's a stranger. <laughs> Make a stranger call. And I just went up to him. I said, hey, I just want to interrupt you for a moment. I don't know if you're going through something in life. I don't know what's going on, but, but I just want to let you know I'll pray for you if you need prayer. Well, that's not a comfortable thing to do. It's me. I'm still uncomfortable. Some of you, it's more uncomfortable for you, but I'm talking about being surrendered to, I need to get this out of my life. And then you, you kind of argue with God. God, I don't think it's wrong. Well, maybe it's not wrong, but he wants you to get that out of your life because you don't need it in your life. The word says this, lay down every, every sin, every weight that, so, that will slow us down, that we, that we lay that aside, that we lay that down. It may not be a sin. It may be something that you just don't need to be, it don't need to have in your life because dedication means, God, I'm laying me on the altar of sacrifice. And then it says this. I read, to, read it to you. It says that the fire came down and it, it sacrificed and the wood and the stones and, and the water and the trenches and the dust. Now, Elijah didn't put dust on there. You, you notice that. You can read it again this week. He didn't put dust on it. He put a bunch of water on it. Probably got it out of the, it was probably salt water out of the sea because they were in a drought. Sounds like 12 barrels of water. He put the sacrifice on there with the wood, the stone, all that's on there. But he didn't put the dust because dust, just, it's, it's this thing that happens when you don't use something. You know, my garage is probably something that has dust on it. When you, you know, maybe if your Bible, if you got that Bible that's been laying over in the corner on the table for the last two years, well, maybe it'll gather some dust on top of it. Because dust accumulates when things aren't used, when they're not moving. You don't go to the jungle and find a cheetah, and the cheetah's got dust on it. Are you with me? Well, because it moves, moves at a high rate of speed. It's, it's a moving animal. And what, and what happens with this altar is there's dust that has accumulated because it's not been used. And I don't know what the altars are in your life where you need to lay your, you commit yourself and dedicate yourself to, but, but are there, is there dust there? And, and, and what I think is, what I think is that spiritually you need to get the duster out and you need to find the things that have dust 
and dust it off because what God wants is God wants to answer with fire. And as long as you're not engaged, as long as you're not committed and dedicated, well, there will be no fire. In the Christian church in America, it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs that a whole lot of people, and I'm not a doomsday person, I'm just being honest with you, and really, a whole lot of people are just not engaging in their faith. And dust is gathering, and spiritually, we need dusters to clean this up so we can prepare for the fire that God wants to send. It's a prerequisite for fire. Old song said, 40-year-old song, sounds like it could be for today, said, children are scattered all over the land. We've lost our love for our fellow man. Fathers and mothers are parted today. There's dust on the altar where we used to pray. Tears that were once shed for a brother in need are now called old-fashioned. They're no longer seen. Greed and proud hearts have gotten in the way. There's dust on the altar where we used to pray. Let's seek out the old paths and walk therein. Our children are crying and dying in sin. Satan is laughing as God's people stray. There's dust on the altars where we used to pray. We've got we've to physically and spiritually make a determination that we're going to dust off the altars and prepare them for the fire of God to come. Anybody with me say yes. And what, I, what Elijah did was he began to build 12 stones, it says he used, one for each tribe of Israel. Well, understand this, that the tribes of Israel were established by God. Was it man's doing? God created that order, that government. 12 is the number of government. You see it in Scripture. You see how that, that Jesus chose not 10, not 8, not 7, not 3, not 20, but 12 disciples. Right, that we're going to follow him. It's the order of, it's, it's government. And what we have to do is get things in order. Somebody shout, get things in order. We're going to get things in order. Because when things are out of order, well, it's a bad day. We had a, a couple weeks ago, we had everything crashed right before the first service. You in the second, you didn't have no problem with it. We, we, we made it through the first. Finally, things came back up online. But everything crashed. There's no words on the screen. Lighting seemed a little weird. Everything was just kind of off kilter. And finally, they get because things were out of order. And what happened was when things are out of order, you know what it does? It kind of creates some confusion. That's where these people are at. Well, are we going to worship Baal or are we going to worship God? Well, we're the chosen people of God. We'll just kind of be quiet and sit here and see what happens. There go that vending machine. Don't go, but I have many years ago. I don't go much. Twinkies are in there. If you don't buy them, they're going to be there until Jesus comes. They'll look the same. I don't know, 65 cents or what you put it in there. And then the thing spins, but the Twinkie don't fall off. You kind of just, maybe, maybe you don't, but my, I you know, kind of bump it a little bit to see if you can knock it and dead, can't get your hand up in there. So you think, well, maybe if I hit it again, it'll push the other one and that one off too. And you put, now you put 65 cents. You're $1.30 into this. They got a number you can call or email and they can get your money back, but 65 cents. So you put 60, and you hit it again, and now you got two kind of hung up in there, and you're a dollar 30 in, you don't have any Twinkies. The Lord may be trying to help you. When things are out of order, well, you get frustrated. You feel like you, you shortchange. You feel like it's not working. Well, let me tell you something. Your spirituality may not be working because things are out of order. I tell you how important it is before, before the Holy Spirit would come and fall on the day of Pentecost. This is Pentecost Sunday. Before that would ever happen, 
before, before the promise of the Father. Jesus said, go and wait. And they're waiting. Before that ever happens, they get things in order. In fact, in Acts 1, uh, verse 15, um, 16 and 17, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, about 120 there, and he said, Brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who betrayed him, or those who arrested Jesus. And so he begins to say, we need, we need to choose somebody. And they're going to they're draw straws, cast lots. And then he, he quotes from Psalms where he says, he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. That, that now we're, we're getting things in order because, because we believe what John the Baptist said, that Jesus came, he was going to baptize us in fire, and he promised, he told us, the promise of the Father's coming, but before that happens, we need to get things in order so God can answer with fire. 